All right. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're going to spend some time now opening the Word. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus Himself, and so we spend time every week opening it up. So I want to invite you to follow along with us in the book of John. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles under the chairs. You could grab one of those and open it up to page 898. Um, 898, 899, right around there. We're going to be in the second half of John chapter 12, and we're continuing this series uh, that just shifts uh, the focus in the Gospel of John to the last words of Jesus. We're now zeroing in on the last week of his life. It's a big pivot. You got three years in chapters 1 through 11, and you got one week in chapters 12 through 21, right, where it, it zeroes in on his death and resurrection. So we're calling this the last words of Jesus. In chapter 12, what we're going to see is the call to see his glory. To see his glory. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it means heaviness or weightiness or greatness. Um, But it's often paired with light. And so the word glory has two senses to it. It has one sense of just the the importance and the heaviness and the impressiveness of something or someone, namely God. But it also has this element of physical light, beauty, right? Radiance. And we see this repeatedly in the Gospel of John that Jesus reflects the glory of God. And that's an important turn and focus that's happening here in chapter 12. And so to kind of help you focus, I have an object lesson, just something I experienced this week that I think will help us put this together. Uh, My brother and sister were uh, helping my mom clean out some of the stuff in her house. We were together. uh, My youngest daughter graduated from high school, so brother and sister came in from out of town, spent some extra time helping my mom work on some stuff. We'd been together for three days, and we were sitting on the couch together last night that we were together. We're like, hey, we never got our picture taken together, right? So I grab my phone. I do a selfie. I snap the picture, but there's a problem, right? Because the light is behind our heads, So what does the picture look like? The picture is like darkness and two glowing light bulbs where the the lamps were, right, on the couch. And so in that moment, I I remembered that our job as people is to reflect the light, to reflect the glory of God. That's what people are made for. Another real crude way to say it is human beings don't glow, right? We don't have a light that radiates from us. We're made to reflect the light of our heavenly father. And even for a picture to work, right? For me to have any light, I've got to be looking at light. I need a light shining on me for there to be any light on my face. That, that's how it works. And so we're, we're called on in this text to see the glory out there, not in me, but out there in God and specifically in Jesus himself. So let's read in John 12, it starts in verse 20. This is a little section we hit last week, so we're kind of using it as the end of last week and the beginning of this week. In chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. So there's going to be a play on words that's going to happen throughout the section. Seeing, light, and glory. Seeing, light, and glory. Okay? We wish to see Jesus. Jesus. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. They want to see Jesus. Jesus doesn't just go, here I am, right? But he has something to teach. So they want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time. Throughout John, he said the hour hasn't come yet. It's not my time. It's not my moment. It's not my hour. Now, he's about to die. This is the last week of his life. Like I said, John is now zeroing in on his death. He says, now the hour has come. The hour has come for my glory, for you to see the glory, the substance, the weight, the light of God and of his son, Jesus. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says, the hour has come. They're saying, we want to see Jesus. And he's like, well, the hour is here. And you're going to see me. And you're going to see me. You're going to see my glory through my death, through the cross, through my resurrection. So our invitation through this text is to see his glory, is to see it, to savor it, to enjoy it, to celebrate it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this in more depth. God, we thank you for your word. And uh, we pray that your spirit would help us because this is a supernatural event, a supernatural occurrence. On our own, we're not able to see your glory. We only see our own. We only see us. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would come here and, and would meet the, the searching of your word and would open our eyes and open our hearts so that we could see, so that we could enjoy you. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move through this section, we're going to cover all the way to the end of chapter 12. Um, and as we do this, we're going to see kind of three steps. The first is that we would see the glory of Christ in the cross. So there's a very specific kind of glory that God gives us. Here he says, I've glorified my name already in the past, but I will glorify it again. And they're zeroing in on how? The cross, the death of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus for us. So we need to see the glory of Jesus in the cross. That's super crucial pun I know but it's crucial okay it's crucial that we see Jesus in the cross and then we're going to be called on to reject our own glory there's going to be this talk about how men want to glory in ourselves we want to glory in our flesh we want to glory in us and there's an invitation to reject our glory reject the glory of mankind and humans so that we can enjoy the glory of God and then finally there will be a wraparound where we're called to come to the glory of the father how can we see the glory of the Father? Now, it's all connected, right? It connects back to the beginning. We see it in what Jesus does for us. But that's the flow of the passage. So first, we want to see the glory of the cross. So we already saw some of this, right? He says, my hour has come. And how does he detail that? Like, what does that mean? My hour has come. He says, my death. So the Greeks want to see him. Sir, we want to see Jesus. How does Jesus answer? The hour has come. You will see my glory through my death. He says, a kernel of wheat 
is going to bear much fruit if it dies and is buried in the ground. You can't find life by holding on to your life. You have to give your life away to find life. This is the pattern of the cross. And so the only way that we as human beings are able to love other people, the only way that we're able to use our gifts in a way that doesn't draw glory to ourselves but gives glory to God is to follow that same pattern of Jesus. Receive the life he gives us through his death and resurrection and then give our own life away. And he tells us to follow that pattern. Um, And so there's this beautiful call here to follow in Jesus' footsteps, but don't miss that the way that we see the glory is by seeing the cross. So a real crude way to say this is you haven't seen Jesus unless you've seen the cross. Does that make sense? If you just think Jesus was a nice teacher, if you just think Jesus was a radical with new ideas, if you just think Jesus is some other guru to follow, you haven't seen Jesus. Jesus is saying his glory is revealed in the cross. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. This is what separates Christianity from every other worldview. It's what separates Christianity from every other philosophy. Every other religion, philosophy, worldview says, hey humans, do some impressive stuff, and then the gods will have to bless you, right? Or the universe, take your pick, right? You might be too sophisticated to say the gods, so then the universe will have to bless you, or then science will have to bless you, or then nature will have to bless you, whatever it is. You're going to receive blessings as you work your way up the human ladder. Christianity says you can't make it up the ladder. Jesus had to come down to you. Matter of fact, Jesus is pretty clear he is the ladder. He is the road. He is the bridge. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's what sets Christianity apart. God comes into our mess, not we work our way up to heaven. And so God grabs hold of us and he pulls us into his reality. And how that works specifically in the cross is Jesus dies a sacrificial death. He's presenting himself at Passover time. It's Passover and he comes and he's like, I'm the one that every Passover ritual, every sacrificial system in the past pointed to. He's the reality. Those are all the shadows, Hebrews says. He's the substance. And he comes and offers himself as the real substitute. So he takes all of our sins upon himself and he gives us his resurrection life. So that if you know Jesus and if you've seen Jesus through the cross, then you know that you are reconciled to God through what he's done by his death and resurrection. Without that, you haven't seen him. Look at verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. This is really beautiful because it helps us to see how serious it is that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that Jesus underwent the punishment that we deserve, that he took our place. It was a serious thing. Sometimes we struggle to relate to Jesus. Uh, Sometimes this happens in superhero movies too. You struggle to see the superheroes relatable because like nothing bad ever happens to them, right? But here we see that Jesus is a real human being that was really hurt and really suffered emotional anguish. His soul really was troubled. So in your trouble, you can remember that you have a great high priest, Hebrews 4.15 says, that can sympathize with you. He can sympathize with you. He knows what it's like to be troubled and anguished. He's walked where you've walked. So look at this, 27. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. You see two things here. And the grammar's different in all the translations. The connecting words are different in all the translations. So the the two big ideas are that Jesus is really genuinely troubled. And the other idea is he is committed to do what God has called him to do. 
both of those in tension simultaneously. And this is a beautiful picture of how we should pray. Um, one of my favorite prayer books is a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I think we're going to have a class this summer on the book. And he uses this model of how Jesus prays to the Father as a model for how we should pray to the Father. So this is much more explicit in Matthew and Mark. You might remember the story of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating drops of blood. He's so anguished that he prays to the Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. And then there's a second part to the prayer. But not my will, your will be done. That's the model of prayer, right? So that Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane prayer is a private prayer with God, right? And this is a public thing he's saying in front of everybody. So it's not the exact same thing. It's just the same two pieces, right? You've got the two pieces of Jesus was genuinely troubled, and he was also saying, but Father, your will be done. This is the mission I've been called to. And that's a model for us to pray. We say, God, if there's any other way, could, could you take this misery of a job from me? Could you fix this? Because I really don't want to go through this. But the way we learn to pray is, but not my will, your will be done. Because maybe God has some mission and purpose for you in that terrible job that you're in right now. Maybe he's using you for his glory. Paul learned this in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul prayed that God would take away a thorn in the flesh and God said, I'm going to leave it because in your weakness you'll learn to depend on my power and my grace. And and people will see more grace. There will be more grace for others as we struggle through this. So if you're struggling with sickness or with a job problem or a relational problem or a family problem or whatever it is, the tension of prayer is we get to be honest with God. Jesus models that. He's both fully God and fully human, and he's honest. I'm anguished. I'm troubled. This is hard, and we can say those things to God. We see this modeled in the Psalms as well. Pray that to God. God, I'm troubled. I'm anguished. Will you help me? And then also pray, but not, not my will. Your will be done. Help me to align myself with your will. We're, we're praying both simultaneously. And in the Christian world, we usually do one or the other, right? Like we usually run to our corners. You pray the like victorious prayers of, I get to have whatever I want in Jesus' name. Or you pray the, I'm never going to ask for anything, let God's will be done kind of prayers, right? God, I'm not going to really ask you for anything because you're God and you're in charge, so I'm not going to cry or complain about anything. Like, that's one way of praying. It's kind of weird. It's another way of praying where you just think he's going to do whatever you say, right? And those are two extremes, and we have to balance those in our prayer life. God, I want this, but I want your will. Help me. Help me, Lord. So we see this beautiful picture in Jesus, and, and follow it along. Then he says, I'm giving myself to you, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So God is saying, you know, God's in the glorifying himself business. And this can be a little confusing. I think John Piper is one of the most helpful authors on this. Uh, C.S. Lewis has written on this as well in a small essay called The Weight of Glory. Um, And in this, you, you recognize that if God is perfect and God is love, then his glory and magnification is actually for our joy, right? If we get more of God, that's actually more life and more joy. It's different for us. Like if you get more of me, bad news, right? You don't want more of me, but we want more of God. We want God to be glorified. So God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. He's saying, now I will in the cross in what's about to happen. I will glorify my name. And then this part's really weird here. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. This is really strange, and I was puzzled over this when I was first studying this, because basically they couldn't hear him, and then Jesus says, this strange voice that you couldn't hear is for your benefit, not for mine. (laughs) 
but he heard it and they didn't hear it. What does that mean? There are a lot of places in the Gospel of John where John will say, and you see this in the other Gospels as well, we didn't get it, but later we got it. And so I just think this is another one of those instances. They didn't get it. They didn't hear it. They didn't understand it. And then later, they're like, oh, that's what was happening, right? And so there's this confirmation. Sometimes we live this out. Um, I learn a Bible verse when I'm six years old, and it doesn't really click until I'm 25, right? And then I get it. I think that happens a lot with us, and it happened with the disciples as well. He's like, this was for your benefit. I don't think it was immediately for their benefit. I think it was later for their benefit. And so in verse 30, uh, verse 31, Jesus says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is saying is through his death and through his glorification, through his death and through the cross, the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, devil, evil incarnate, is in charge of this world. He's going to be cast out. He's losing his, pray, his place. He's no longer on the throne, so to speak. Now, when we do systematic theology, that's where you kind of compare every verse that talks about a certain subject. That's basically systematic theology or topical theology. So we read everything about Satan. We read everything about the end times and the different ages. What we see is through the cross, Satan was dethroned. Another way to talk about it is Satan was defanged, right? So Peter will say later in one of his letters, that Satan still roams around like a roaring lion trying to devour people. Um, but we also see James say, all you have to do is resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there's a sense how Satan is still real and evil is still happening. But when we are under the power of Satan, it's because we've given ourselves to him. But he's no longer in charge in the same way he was before. He's been dethroned through the cross. And so through Jesus' death and resurrection, the ruler of this world was cast out. And he doesn't have the same power that he had before. Now there will be a final casting out, right, that we see in Revelation being thrown in the lake of fire. It'll all be ended. And so right now he runs around, but it's kind of like his fangs aren't as sharp as they used to be. His power isn't as great as it used to be because now through the cross we have freedom. We have atonement. We have this power over sin and death because we're forgiven through the cross, through the death of Jesus. This is how he reveals his glory is in the cross. And then he goes on and he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is saying here, I'm going to draw all people to myself. And through my death, all people will come to me. I'm going to be lifted up. And he's saying clearly that lift up means he's going to die. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Right? Because they're confused. If you remember last week we talked about his triumphal entry, they thought they were going to have this warlord Jesus that was going to come in and you know, knock down everybody, and he wasn't going to suffer. He was going to make the bad guys suffer. But here he's saying he's going to suffer. Here he's saying, I'm going to be a substitute king. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to be that kind of king, not the king that comes in as a warlord and wipes everybody out. And so they were confused about this. The other thing that's interesting too is he says he's going to draw all men to him. Now this has been a theme. Remember the turn where the Jews weren't believing in him, but now the, the Greeks at, at verse 20 said, we want to see Jesus. Now Greeks and outsiders are coming to Jesus, but Jews are turning away. Jesus repeatedly says he's going to draw all kinds of men to himself. Um, this is not every single person, right? Because it's possible to not believe in Jesus and to live an eternity without him. That's possible. Not every single person will be saved and will be with Jesus forever. 
And so here what he's saying is he's going to draw all kinds of people to himself. Any of you ever watched the Olympics, the opening or closing ceremonies? Anybody seen those? They have all the people march in with their different uniforms and their flags and everything. Uh, the parade of nations. This is what Jesus is talking about. All kinds of people will be saved, no matter where you come from. He's not saying, I'm only going to save Jews. I'm not only going to save educated people, or I'm only going to save white people, or brown people, or red people, or purple people. Or, right? It's going to save all people. Now again, he doesn't mean every single individual. He means all kinds of people, every tribe. We see this reflected in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 talks about all the tribes and tongues and languages coming before the Lord. So, I mean, the Olympic ceremony is kind of cool, but it's going to be way better in heaven, right? It's going to be way more awesome because, again, it won't be about the glory of the nations. It'll be about the glory of the king. And Jesus says the way that this works is through the cross because the cross says you're saved because what Jesus has done, his substitution. When we pride ourselves in ourselves, we're saying I'm saved by being this color, coming from this family, going to this school, being raised in this neighborhood, right? It, it undercuts that. The cross says, no, you're not saved by being that kind of person. You're saved by what Jesus has done for you. And so you have an opportunity here. Wh who are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? And Jesus makes it really pointed here as we move through the text. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They're like, okay, what kind of Messiah is this that you're offering us? Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is really interesting. Again, pay attention to the questions people ask Jesus and the answers he gives. Because I think there are big clues there, right? When Jesus is asked a question and he gives an answer that you're like, that's not, that's not the answer we wanted, Jesus, right? Like, what did they ask? They asked, basically, I'm going to make it sound worse than it sounded in the text, how dare you offer yourself as a dying king? We want a conquering king. And so Jesus refuses to play their game, and he doesn't offer any kind of theological back and forth, right? He doesn't get into a lecture. He doesn't get into a debate. They're saying, Jesus, we wanted you to be like this. And Jesus says, you only got a little while left. You got some light right in front of you. Are, are you going to believe? He, he makes it personal. And so I just want to stop and do that. I'm a, I'm a super laid back guy, so this is hard for me, right? Man, Jesus is being so, so pushy here, right? He's saying, you've got to decide right now. And so I'm, I'm thinking, I've got to say the same thing to you and to me. Like, will you accept the light that he has given you right now? Or are you going to do this very dangerous thing where you say, I might do that next week? You might not be here next week. He's saying, accept the light. Well, you have the light. There's light right now. I'm not going to get in a theological discourse with you. I'm not going to debate what kind of Messiah you want. You want another kind of Messiah? Well, this is the Messiah you got. And then it's the only Messiah that can save you. More wars and more conquering is not going to save you. I'm giving myself for you on the cross. Are you going to respond? He says, you've got light and you can be sons of light. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So my question for you is, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus and not in you? You're not believing in what kind of person you are, how strong you are, 
or your preconceived notions of what Jesus should be, but you're believing in Jesus as he offers himself to you as the the God who gives himself on the cross. Do you see Jesus? Because he says that's the only way you're going to see the light and the glory of who he really is. He reveals the Father by giving himself for us on the cross. Do you see him? Will you believe? He gives you the opportunity to be pulled into his family as sons and daughters of God. You can be sons of light. You've got the light. Believe. And now he's going to move into more stern warning mode. In the next section, he's going to say we should reject the glory of men. The reason you don't want to believe today is because you're holding on to the glory of man. You're holding on to the glory of the flesh. You're saying, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to have this life. I can believe in Jesus later, but what I've got now is better, right? I want this life. I don't want what Jesus offers me. And so look at this transition. So he says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Then the next paragraph, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. A a living metaphor. He's like, you better believe in me. I'm right here. And then he goes and hides. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Go back and reread John. This is a theme that comes up again and again. John just kind of repeats key stuff over and over again, right? He shows them who the Father is. He heals people. He helps people. He preaches the word. Jesus is like, here I am. Believe in me. And he gives you signs. He gives you reasons to believe. And you want to have theological arguments. No, I'm not ready yet. Let's debate this a little bit more. It says he'd given them all kinds of reasons, and yet they resisted. Look at verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is tough stuff. So just on the surface, it says they didn't believe because God had blinded them. God had hardened their heart. God was not allowing them to believe. What do we do with that? It's hard. Now, I think as as those who wrestle well with the Bible, when we read something that's hard, we need to say, that's hard. We need to be honest about it, right? We're not going to figure it out unless we say, God, I don't get this. It doesn't seem to match what I've seen, right? This seems unfair that God would not let people believe. So let's rehearse where this comes from, right? So he's quoting Old Testament prophecy, And he's uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Both of them have the same theme of people's hearts being hardened and not believing. And both of them have kind of different perspectives on the gospel. Chapter 6 at the beginning of Isaiah, chapter 53 at the end of Isaiah. So you read those two chapters, you got a pretty nice bookends of all of Isaiah. Um, In Isaiah chapter 6, I'll remind you of the story. Isaiah, the prophet, sees the glory of Yahweh, sees the glory of the Lord. And what happens when you really see God's glory? When you see full on how holy and beautiful and perfect and awesome God is? Well, the proper human response to that is what Isaiah does where he says, I am undone. I am unclean. My people are unclean. We're all unclean. We're sinful. That's the proper response to the perfection of God. And that's what Isaiah does. He reacts in that way. And then God in his grace sends an angel to take a coal from the altar and basically burn Isaiah's face. He touches it to his lips because it's a discussion of his mouth and the words he says, right? So that's where the image is focused. But broader picture, he's taking 
fire from the altar to symbolize the forgiveness rituals of the altar in the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrificial system. So God is forgiving, atoning, cleansing Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And then after Isaiah is cleansed, after Isaiah is forgiven and shown grace, then God says, who shall go for me? Who shall, who shall share my message? And Isaiah is like, send me. Again, this is the normal progression as the people of God. We see God's holiness. We recognize we're sinners. Then we see his grace coming to us. He forgives us. He cleanses us. And then we're like, all right, whatever you want me to do. I'm yours. I belong to you now. This is a model of the Christian life. And then God gives him some bad news. God says, great, Isaiah, I've got a job for you. You're going to go preach the message. You're going to tell people about me. And guess what? They're not going to listen. They're not going to believe. And he says, I'm hardening their hearts and I'm blinding their eyes. Now, again, this is hard for us, right? Because it seems like God's not being fair. And I think why it seems so unfair for us is because we assume what he's saying is, sweet, innocent people that do good and love God are then turned into bad guys by God's power, right? Isn't that kind of how we think about it? And that's just not fair because people are so good and so sweet and then God turns them bad. And that's not what it's saying at all. You've got bad people that deserve justice and deserve hell and deserve separation from God. And so God, it's called sometimes by theologians, judicial hardening. God hardens their hearts of people who already have hard hearts, who already disbelieve. God is saying, I'm going to give you over to yourself. We see parallels that help us make sense of this in the story of Pharaoh in Exodus. In Exodus, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You can follow the scene throughout the scripture. It's picked up in Psalm 95. It's picked up in a bunch of other places. Uh, It's talked about in Romans chapter 9. Uh, And when we see this picture, we understand that hardening is not taking something innocent and making it evil. It's giving it over to its own strength. And so we see this explained in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, it says, this is how the wrath of God is revealed to humanity. God gives us over to our desires. God gives us over to our desires. God gives us over to our desires. Romans 1 says it three times. Chapter 1, verses 24, 26, 28. It's a repeated theme in chapter 1. And so the idea here is that hardening and blinding, this judicial hardening of God saying, you won't believe, it's, that's a scary thought. We could go there, right? You're saying today, I'm not going to believe, but I'll believe later. He's saying, it, it could get to a point where you can't believe anymore. Don't play around with this stuff. This is dangerous. God might just continue to give you over to yourself so much that yourself is so big you can't see God anymore. So it's this language of, of strengthening is really what it is. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for God hardening Pharaoh's heart is strengthening. And then the word give over to their desires is what's used in, in chapter 1. I like to use the image of God watering Pharaoh like a plant. Pharaoh's already evil and God just feeds him, gives him more energy, gives him more strength. I believe that's really what hardening is. So God is actively at work, but he's giving Pharaoh more of Pharaoh. And so we're called on to reject that kind of being given over to our own desires. That's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is me getting more of what I want, which is really scary when you stop and think about it and say, the good news of our culture right now is follow your desires. But Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is follow your desires. 
That's scary. Just, I want more of me. I want more of what I want, right? The logic is, if, if I want it, it's got to be good. God says, no, that's actually his wrath. And think about that. How do you think about the wrath of God? You think about the wrath of God as God saying no. Really, the Bible is, well, God says no because he loves you. <laughs> it's like, no, don't do that. It's going to hurt you. But his wrath is actually saying, here, go ahead. The way C.S. Lewis phrases it is, your will be done. We're supposed to pray that to God. The wrath of God is God saying that to you and to me. All right, your will be done. Do your thing. He strengthens us. He hardens us. He gives us over to our own glory. So we're no longer about him, but we're more and more about us. And how do I know this is the direction this is going? Because he continues to take it in that direction in, in this passage. Look at verse 41. Now Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. So John is interjecting, Isaiah saw the glory of God, but who's, who's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about Jesus, right? So Isaiah saw the glory of God. Isaiah also saw the glory of Jesus. And he goes on in verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they, wouldn't, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. So this ties it all up, right? So what's hardening about? What's the blinding about? It's about loving our own glory. It's about loving the glory of man more than the glory of God. And this can be a little confusing, right? My wife and I were reading this earlier in the week because it says they believed, and so we're confused. Like, well, what does it mean that they kind of believed, but then they ended up loving their own glory more than the glory of God? And this is confusing for us because the word belief is used a couple different ways in Scripture. Um, Paul has written most of the New Testament, right? So he's the one that's written a lot of our New Testament letters. And when Paul uses belief, he always uses it in an absolute sense. You either believe or you don't. You trust Jesus, you're saved. And nothing can take that away. You're secure forever. Once saved, always saved. That's how Paul talks. But James says there's a kind of belief that is fake. It's possible for you and for me to fake it. James says, you can have a dead faith. You can have a faith that has no connection and no uh, transformation in your life, and it's not real. And we've all seen that, I think, right? You've, you've seen that in your friends. I've seen that in people who are like, oh, yeah, I believe. I've prayed the prayer. I've done the thing. But they don't believe. And that's what John is talking about here. These guys believed. At some level, they're like, yeah, Jesus is real. Yeah, I think he's the guy, but I'm not going to follow him. I don't really love him. I'm not actually going to pursue him because I'm more worried about what other people think. And John's saying, and James would say, that's, that's not a real belief. It's not actual belief. That's not saving belief. You're loving the glory of man more, the glory, more than the glory of God. And remember what I said with the opening illustration. We don't actually have any kind of good glory on our own, right? I mean, we have an inherent value just being made in the image of God. There's, there's something about us that makes all human beings deserving of dignity and worth, and that's why we respect all people no matter where we come from. So we're made in the image of God. But that image is fractured by our sin. And we're just going deeper and deeper into our own sin as we pursue our own desires and glory in ourselves instead of glorying in God. So we're called to reject the glory of man and instead glory in God, glory in Jesus. How are you going to save yourself? Are you going to save yourself by your own expertise? By what you're good at? That's glorying in you. 
And he says, if you go down that trail, it's going to be harder and harder for you to even see God at all. And we have to be able to see him in the cross. What I want to clarify is that this does not mean self-hatred, right? So how do we apply this? How do we reject the glory of men? I think it's all about looking at the glory of God, seeing the glory, you know, walking through those steps that Isaiah walks through in Isaiah chapter 6, walking through what Jesus invites us to, to see him through the cross. I believe that's what it means to reject the glory of man. Because there's another way of rejecting the glory of man that ends up being like a self-deception where you're actually glorifying yourself, right? It's this religious thing where you're like, I'm so terrible, I'm such a worm, I'm so evil, and you're like beating yourself up. You're hating yourself thinking that will somehow impress God. If you ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but I've, I've gone this way before, right? Sometimes Puritans are great, but sometimes they lean this way a little bit, you know, this like worm theology where it's like the way you get closer to God is talking about how evil you are. And we got to have that moment, right? You got to have that moment like Isaiah where he's like, I am undone, I'm evil, I'm unclean. You, you got to face that reality. But you don't earn favor with God by saying it more and more and beating yourself over and over again. Self-hatred is not the way to get to Jesus. So giving up your life is not a focus on self. Giving up your life is focusing on the life that you can have in Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's a very subtle difference. It's a very tricky difference. But our, our goal is to focus on him, not to focus on self. Whether you're loving yourself or beating yourself up. Just stop focusing on self. Focus on him. Run to him. See the glory that he offers to us. And so this brings us then to the last section of how Jesus and we can then glorify the Father. So again, throughout John, it's all, it's all tangled up. There's no glory of Jesus separate from the glory of the Father. The way Hebrews talks about it is Jesus is the very light of God himself. He's the radiance of God's glory, right? So there's a, a oneness there. And like I said, if you were to just do a computer word search and just look up glory and light, you'll see those two repeatedly paired together throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Glory, as I said, kind of has this oomph, this weight to it, and then light is this beauty and glow. And it's like Jesus is the glory of God. He is the light coming out, as Hebrews describes, of God himself. And so Jesus glorifies the Father. Look at verse 43 again. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And this is now contrasted then with Jesus. Jesus is the one human who actually loved the glory of the Father more than himself. That's why we got to run to him. He's our champion. It says in verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus is saying to believe in me is to believe in the Father. Verse 45, And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. He's showing us the Father. It's going to say later in John 14, we'll see in a few weeks, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He goes on in verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is really key here. He's now going to say some other more confusing things, okay? So let's pause for a minute and soak up verse 46 because I think it's the clue that helps us understand the confusing stuff. So he says, if you believe in me, you will have light and not remain in darkness. What does that mean? That means we're in darkness now. We're already in darkness, right? And that was the same clue that helped us understand the hardening stuff. Oh, we were already hard, and he gave us over to our hardness. Here he's saying, you're already in the dark, so I'm coming to save you. You're in the dark. Come with me. I'm the light, right? He's inviting us to himself. 
And now he's going to say, like I said, some things that are a little strange. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He says similar things in John chapter 3. He didn't come to judge, but to save. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. Look at verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So here he's saying, confusing stuff. I don't come to judge you, but you will be judged. And it's going to be the words I said, but I'm not really going to judge you. I'm just here to save you. you, know, and you know, there's some back and forth there that's kind of confusing. We see the same thing in John chapter 3. We're already condemned. That's the issue. Jesus is like, I'm not like rolling in here to condemn people. You're already condemned. You're in darkness. I'm here as the light. He's inviting you out of the hole, right? He's like saying, come follow me. You're already condemned. You already are in darkness. You're already struggling. I've, I've come to save you. And that's the invitation that Jesus is offering to us. So again, the way that we glorify the Father is recognizing, number one, Jesus is the only human that ever perfectly glorified the Father. And so he's our champion. He's our substitute. Repeatedly, he's saying, I do what the Father told me. I'm the one that glorifies the Father. He's our champion that stands in. He's the true Adam. He's the true human. He's the true Israelite. He's what we are supposed to be. And so he takes our place. Theologians like to call, about, uh, call this double imputation. Not only does he take your sin, but he gives you his righteousness so that God sees you as whole and perfect and God delights in you so you can run to him and you can talk to him and you can pray to him because you're his child. And Jesus is saying, come, come to me and I'll give you this life. And so how, how do we live this out? What does it mean to glorify the Father and not glorify ourselves? I want to pick back up on that theme of self-hatred, right? There's a tricky way where we can say, hey, look at me, I'm really super sinful and think that that somehow earns favor with God instead of looking to him for what he has. I, I think a, a beautiful way to kind of tie in with what Jesus was saying at the beginning in John 12, 20 through 26, that little section where he says, he's going to be a seed that goes into the ground and gives life. And then he says, the father will honor you if you follow in his footsteps, if you lose your life to find it. So I think that seed planting is a really beautiful image. I got a picture here of someone planting something. Um, we have all these gifts. Uh, we all have unique experiences, right? Things you learned, beautiful things from your culture, things uh, you prefer, the ways that God has wired your personality. We're all gifted in different ways. There's some things we're terrible at, other things we're good at. And the danger for humans is to hold on to whatever that like one or two things are you're really good at, and for me to say, mine, right? This is mine. I will not let you have it. This is what I'm good at. Jesus, it's all I've got. You can't have it. And what we're doing there is we're glorying in self. And I believe what we're called on is to, to offer that, right? Like the little boy that offers his loaves and fishes. Like, well, I got something. I can't feed 5,000, but I got some loaves and fishes. Here you go, Jesus. Like, what do you have? You offer it to Jesus. Again, you don't burn it down. You don't throw it out. You plant it. And, and think about the, the comparison of the parable of the talents. It's a famous parable in Matthew where Jesus says this master gives money to different people and a couple of them invest what he gave them because he believes that the master is gracious. But one hides it and buries it because he believes the master is harsh and takes what doesn't be belong to him. 
So the question is, how, how do you use your gifts? Are you thinking you're a spiritual orphan and you've got to guard and protect everything you've got because God is against you? Or do you believe God is gracious, he's given life to you in Jesus so you can give what you have to help others? You can plant seeds, you can give your life as a seed in the ground just as Jesus did because you've received life from Jesus. That's, that's the model. So Romans 12 says it this way. Great verse that kind of ties it up for us, what it means to glorify the Father. Romans 12, 1 says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is spiritual worship. This is reasonable worship. This is what the Christian life is. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice. What that means is every day you get up and you're like, Jesus, you gave me breath again today. Let me give this day to you. Let me plant it as a seed, not bury it because I'm afraid of you, but offer my life with reckless abandon because I trust in your graciousness. I'm gonna spend my talents for your glory. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You, you give yourself away. You lose your life and find it. You're planted in the ground and he brings life out of what you've offered. Not because you're so awesome, not because I'm so awesome, but because God is so gracious to us in Jesus. He gives us life and says, now, now pass it on, now share it with others. That's how we glorify the Father. That's how we see his glory. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. Help us to see you in the cross. Help us to recognize that you're the God that's come for us. And so any using or spending of our gifts does not earn anything with you, but it's something we can only do because you've given us life. So God, help us to give ourselves away. Show us this week um, how to offer ourselves, how to spend our talents, how to spend our experiences for you, for your glory to share the good news of, of who you are and how you love us. We pray that you would transform us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.